Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Recorded live. Hello, everyone. This is Carl Shinneman, president of Remote Review with Inspired Review. And welcome to another edition of ESI Bites. We're alongside the Honorable Judge John Facciola, retired U.S. Magistrate Judge for the United States District Court of the District of Columbia. We attempt to offer information, insights, and ideas about e-discovery innovation from national speakers on electronic discovery at a price everyone can afford, which is free, and available when you're interested in listening to it, which is when you hit play on whatever device you're listening on. Today we have an interesting show which hopefully is our last show in the new federal uh, amendments dealing with electronic discovery, which became effective earlier this year. Judge Facciola and I thought it would be fun to get an old lawyer, an old judge, and an old technologist together and pair them with what I want to be clear is not an old moderator and discuss uh, from the perspective of wisdom and perspective, uh, which age and experience uh, provide without the huge fear of repercussions, which People in early in their careers sometimes temper their public responses in the interest of self-preservation uh, on whether we think the end result of the amendments was worth the many years of effort and whether they'll make a huge difference. We had a great working title for the show, which got scrapped, but it was passed along to Judge Waxy at the Sedona conference, and he laughed and said he gladly would have been on this show and would have kept the working title in place. So. Let me introduce our panel. Uh, we've got uh, for our older lawyer, Tom Allman, who was general counsel at BASF Corporation back when uh, the legal think tank Sedona Conference was started. And many of my friends have pointed uh, off the record uh, uh, about the history of Sedona, of Tom's involvement, of being highly influential in getting this important think tank funded and off the ground. Tom's also Chair Emeritus of the Sedona Working Group 1 on Electronic Document Retention and Production and was a member of the eDiscovery panel at the 2010 Duke uh, Litigation Conference. During the 2006 amendment cycle, he served as Chair of the Lawyers of Civil Justice eDiscovery Committee and was an early advocate of what became current Rule 37A. He closely follows eDiscovery rulemaking in state and federal courts and is published widely on the topic. In addition to uh, working um, uh, in-house, uh, he's also practiced law at Taft Detonius in uh, Hollister and Mayor Brown. And for the current round of amendments, Tom kept a running analysis of rules and discussion points about the rules. Uh, the many drafts he sent across the country represent a great annotated legislative history for the initiative. He's published numerous articles on e-discovery and corporate compliance and is a frequent speaker on, on e-discovery and related topics. Our old technologist, Stuart Hubbard, uh, is referred to by his wife as the grandpa of e-discovery. Uh, he has 35 years of experience in the legal technology industry, and he currently is director of e-discovery and litigation support at Bradley Arendt Bolt Cummings LLP, a large firm with seven offices in the southeast U.S. Stuart's background is software development. 
has an MA degree and completed all the coursework towards a PhD in computational linguistics, a discipline that applies directly what lawyers do in e-discovery and when conducting investigations. Although his vocational interest has always been on technology, he grew up in a family of lawyers, which gave him an understanding of the legal culture. Pulling these threads together, his career has always focused on providing technology and related services to attorneys. He had his own consulting business in Denver, Colorado, more than 15 years, and counted uh, many of the AmLaw 100 as his clients, as well as corporate legal departments and even the courts. Eventually, he took a full-time position with Schiff Harden in Chicago, where he served for six years as firm YD discovery manager before leaving to join Bradley Aaron. And of course, we have as our old judge, uh, Judge Facciola, who's uh, uh, been announced many times on this show and is known to everyone in the field. That's how old he is. <laughs> so <laughs> I will assume the uh, role of moderator and try to let the old judge, old lawyer, and old technologist muse about where we are today in e-discovery after the new amendments have been passed. Uh, so let's start the show here. Um, Tom, you were a volunteer scrivener for the rulemaking process. You were that, that outstanding series of updates I referred to chronicling the evolution of the rules. What do you think were some of the most contentious debates, and do you think the end product of those debates seems like a good outcome or, or just watered-down compromises? Well, Carl, the... Um the background to the 2015 amendments is the 2006 amendments, and those of us who fought the battles that were involved in that process walked away from it <clears throat> feeling that we hadn't really accomplished very much. And so uh, at the 2010 conference where Judge Fiola and I were on a committee, uh, on a panel dealing with electronic discovery, we made some pretty strong suggestions about how the rules could be improved by having a, 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 a rule-based preservation outlook that would be comprehensive and useful and people could rely on. So with that kind of a backdrop, and then with the further backdrop that the uh, Duke Conference was apparently, at the time at least, uh, unanimously of the opinion that proportionality had not been adequately um, uh, emphasized by courts over the years, uh, against those two uh, really moving targets, but pretty important ones, I would say that the process has indeed been worthwhile, even though it's taken us from basically from 2006 to 2015 to get it right. And I think we're going to find over the next few years that in those two particular instances, um, both courts and parties are going to be able to do a better job of meeting the obligations that they've undertaken under Rule 1 for a just, speedy, and inexpensive resolution of cases. And I'm, I'm rather optimistic about it. So, Stuart, you've worked with technology and law for uh, a very long time, as we said at the beginning. And uh, to steal a key element from the new rules, do you think we spend a, uh, quote, proportionate amount of time in the legal community embracing technological developments to help with e-discovery? Well, um, I think it depends on who you mean by we. If we is the entire legal profession, then I would say yes. It's just that it's been uh, disproportionately distributed. I think there are a lot of people, such as the people on this call, that are quite knowledgeable about technology and its application to law practice. 
and then there's um, not very much in the middle class, and then there's a lot of people that seem to know very little and think about it uh, very little. So I think as uh, an industry, we do a proportionate amount of thinking about it, and I think the way the rules were promulgated over time, how they evolved and developed over time is, is proof of that. You know, Tom being kind of the, the James Madison of the rules, having kept notes on all of the discussions, um, can probably chronicle that better than I can. But I think people were serious about it, thought about it in great detail, really looked for a good outcome, and um, applied what they knew about technology as it exists and what they anticipated technology to be to come up with what I think were some pretty good amendments over the last three iterations, at least, relative to technology. Um, so in that sense, it's proportionate. It's just unfortunately not distributed proportionally throughout the profession. You know, I, I, if I could just dump on that for a second, I think the most striking thing that I've seen as I've gone around, I should mention that I teach a class in e-discovery. I've done it for, oh, I guess, six or seven years now, along with Scott Kane, who is head of e-discovery for um, one of the uh, large major firms. And what we have observed as we go around talking to federal judges and magistrate judges that in, in the Midwest, at least, is that um, folks are not well acquainted with technology. And indeed, there is a lot of, um, there's a lot of work to be done. <laughs> to meet what Stuart is alluding to, to get to get a more even approach on technology out there in the in the real world. It is a little bit depressing to those of us that are of our age and have been in it a long time and have thought deeply about it for a long time. You should think that we would have more of an impact, or we would like to think that, over the course of the many years that we've been talking about it than, than we have. And I always have these moments when I'm talking to partners at this firm or any firm come to realize that they don't have a very high level of understanding. And I realize I had this conversation with a similar partner five years ago, 10 years ago, 20 years ago. Um, so, so that's that's disconcerting. Um, nevertheless, I do. I'm optimistic about it. I do think we're headed in the right direction. Uh, this is Fatih. It's on the line with both uh, Stuart and Tom. Said there was an, uh, an order this week out of the Oklahoma court, I believe, in which uh, recounted how a lawyer had been uh, suspended from practice in the bankruptcy court because he couldn't figure out how to use the electronic filing system to file his pleadings. That involves the complication of hitting one keystroke over the key yeah. that says file group. So I, I don't know. I guess in every lawyer's house, the VCR is flashing 12 o'clock. Uh, so it's it's been a long, hard struggle. <laughs> oh, that's funny. So um, so uh, Judge Facciola, um, to, to keep talking to you here, uh, there's a prominent state court judge uh, in, in my neck of the woods in Pennsylvania, in the Allegheny County Court of Common Pleas, uh, named Stanton Wettick, uh, uh, used to scoff at the federal rules for e-discovery for the types of cases he'd see in state court, which tend to be smaller. But paraphrasing him, he used to say that too many rules just raise expenses, and in most cases, they were not necessary. In fact, uh, he used to cite proportionality 10 to 15 years ago as being really required in this area. So what do you think about that proposition as we look at the rules? That, well, that less rules may be better. As I learned when I worked with the uh, committee trying to revise the Superior Court rules in the District of Columbia, Superior Court being our main trial court, I learned that one size does not fit all. Obviously, rules that would pertain to a large case probably have no place in small claims, course of landlord tenant. 
So in that situation, I believe the judge has a good point. Uh, I would answer, however, that what we have seen and are seeing more of is that e-discovery is hitting the smaller case as well. It's becoming very, more, very, very important in family court, for example, where the family banks on the phone, on the internet, uh, emails, text messages, and so forth. Indeed, uh, two of uh, beloved friends of ours, uh, Tom O'Connor and uh, Craig Ball, have written a book on the small case and e-discovery in the small case. I've been to panel discussions about that, and lawyers are now explaining that it's everywhere. So I don't know when the judge made that statement, but I'm afraid it's simply not true. Uh, there's no place you can run and hide and get away from this. It's just there. In terms of proportionality, obviously, we've had those proportionality rules since at least 1983. So they should have, have always informed our practice. The decision to move them to the very dis- definition of uh, discovery, I hope, will underline just how important they are. But the judge is certainly right that not one size does not fit all. You always have to make the, the rule proportionate to the nature of the court. But with that said, I, I see a, a growth of e-discovery throughout the practice court. Yeah, I guess I would uh, concur with that. The proportionality rule has been in place since the 80s, and I think uh, its meaning has been something of a sliding scale, and that's what the rules are intended to provide us, something related to meaning in the context of the technology. Um, that we're using. And the technology, as we all know, changes more rapidly than the rules can change. So we're always kind of playing catch up. But I sort of view the rules as a sort of a, of a safety net. Um, if there's an issue or a problem that can't be resolved and you can go to the rules and come up with a resolution, um, then I think the rules have succeeded. And in fact, the rules are necessary in those circumstances. Following up on, uh, following up, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt. Excuse me. No, go ahead. No, I was just going to follow up on that and ask Tom and Stuart whether they saw or thought there was reason to believe whether because of the new rules or otherwise, lawyers are now more aggressively managing their cases to achieve proportionality and get the expenses down. Well, let me comment on the proportionality issue because um, the first question Carl asked me was what were the big what, what were some of the big disputes, and um, I, I sat through the. Um, through the hearings, and I have to say that proportionality was, was undoubtedly the um, biggest complaint raised by folks. And, and the, the reason they raised those um, concerns was they thought, and to some extent they were correct, I think, they thought that there was an attempt to cut back on the scope of discovery that would be permissible in certain types of cases. And there was a lot of loose talk about that. And in fact, the first draft of the initial proposal, um, the accompanying committee note flat out said that, it, that this was a change in the scope of discovery. Now, that, that language was dropped after the complaints were made. And the committee clarified in no uncertain terms that they were not making a change in the scope of discovery. They were simply heightening the awareness of parties and courts to take into account the pre-existing proportionality concerns. But that was one hell of a fight, and there was a lot of strange and perhaps overwrought statements made on both sides of the issue. So the real question that I think Judge Fasciola is asking me, and that is this, out of that hundred and so decisions that I've read since December 1st in which proportionality has been discussed, do I believe that a significant number of them have been decided differently because of the movement of the proportionality factors into Rule 26B1. And Carl, can you guess what my answer is? 
<laughs> Go for it. I, I'm going to. Harry, what do you think I'm going to say? I'm going to say that it hasn't made a huge difference. I can find no discernible difference in the opinions pre pre December one and post December one on the merits of the cases when they decide whether or not to uh, compel production or to restrict in a protective order uh, and so on. I can't, I can't find any meaningful difference, and most people who have written on it agree with me. However, having said that, there is no question that what Judge Fasciola just asked is extremely important, and I think it is happening, and that is I think people are thinking about proportionality. I think, he, I think they are consciously... Um, Taking it into account when they write their objections, I think they are. I think they're revising their form um, requests and their form objections. And I, I think out there there is some uh, very positive movement going on. I can't prove it, uh, and that's the. I guess that's the disadvantage of being an academic, which is, I have to confess is what I am now. I'm not. I don't have my feet on the ground. I'm not. I'm not in the um, in the courtroom, and I'm not in the. Uh, planning room, but I'd be interested. Carl, you're you're around there enough, and, and Stuart, you're in a law firm. What do you guys think? Yeah, I can offer some some um, anecdotal evidence on that that really kind of supports that statement. I know um, down here in Alabama, I'm not an Alabamian, and I haven't been here very long, so it was all sort of new to me, but um, on December 1st, that very day, I was asked by the, the Alabama State Bar Construction Group to do a presentation on these new amendments. What do they mean and how are they going to be applied and what do I think we're going to be going, uh, going from there and how is this going to change things? And we also did a number of programs internally to the firm. We're, we're a fairly large firm. We've got about 550 lawyers and we gathered them together in several offices and we talked about the rules. So I think clearly it got people's um, attention. You know, I'm kind of of the school that proportionality already existed in the rules, had been practiced for 30 some years. People were fairly used to thinking about it, or at least they should be, and that the amendments were not markedly different, although they did generate a whole lot of discussion. And I think that discussion continued after the, law, the, the amendments went into effect. And I think that's a, a good thing. I think that's a great outcome, actually, of the, uh, of the 2015 amendments. I think, Stuart, you answered it with your uh, introductory point that the, uh, the volume of people talking about these things is great, but the middle class is uh, big. And, uh, and uh, there's a lot right. of people. And, and my, my problem is I'm mostly talking to e-discovery people who um, complain to me that they have a hard time getting the rest of the firm on board, but I do think that they get more um, more visibility now, given the great costs that are involved. Forget what the rules say; clients are not happy <laughs> with the costs. So you know that's that's put a lot of uh, you know a lot of uh, pressure into the space. So. Um, I wanted to uh, jump into uh, the proportionality discussion a little bit more and uh, share with you some one of my thoughts and get your reaction. The, the rules seem to want lawyers to get their arms around a case and let the court help them right-size discovery for the needs of their case. And in my experience, budgets for e-discovery tend to be the guesses until the work's actually done. Because you don't really know what it's going to cost until you actually wade into the data and of course, at that point in time, discovery orders are, are typically already in place. So Stuart, do you see sort of the same weakness and proportionality argument that I do that unless the orders are written in pencil, 
parties may not be prepared to argue costs, the real costs, until a discovery order has already been entered. Well, I, I guess I disagree with you fundamentally, but um, I, I do think that there are a lot of people that don't know what the costs they're up against are likely to be because they don't do a very thorough analysis. They don't know because they haven't looked deeply enough and they haven't really tried. I feel like we've been in this business long enough and we have a long enough history. And keep in mind, I come from the technology side of things, basically kind of a vendor perspective. And you know, we look at it from an economic perspective for purposes of our, of our businesses. And you know, we want to be in a position as, as, as vendors to be able to put a number on what we anticipate um, e-discovery costs are going to be, take that number to the client and take that number to the, to the, to the billing partner and say, is it worth it? You know, can you now make a judgment about this proportionality issue based upon this number and have pretty good confidence that that number is fairly close? I, I don't think there are a lot of firms that can do that, um, but there are some, and, and there are some vendors that cannot do that. But I do think the experience level is such that now after, you know, 20 years of, uh, of e-discovery work um, th that we can put a pretty close number on it. And if you're doing a lot of e-discovery work, like a large firm like, like we are, uh, we can look at our experience over time and make a judgment um, about individual matters based upon um, an average. Say, well, this is what we expect at the cost. If it costs a little bit more or a little bit less, we can, we can live with that because we're not going to hit the average every time. But if we put that number on it, um, over time we're going to get a good result for our clients and we're going to be operating under, um, under assumptions that are, that are pretty good. So I don't, I don't really buy the argument that you can't go into an e-discovery project um, without knowing in pretty certain terms uh, what the budget should be. I, I believe you can because it's a lot of it's simple math calculations based on experience. Right. What I'm saying right. is a lot of the times I'm not given all the input <laughs> to enter that accurate calculation, and then only once we start looking at the data can we see, well, yeah. you really un underestimated the number of redactions that were going to be done by a huge number. Uh, yeah. Or, um, uh, you know, uh, you know, problems with large files instead of it being mostly, you know, emails. And, and these are sometimes outlier cases, but I, I find in most cases we don't get all the inputs that I would like. Now, having said that, you, if you're smart, you, you quickly react once you start working and you let people know it's going to cost a little bit more than what you estimated mm -hmm. because these are the things that you weren't aware of. But, yeah, but let me just say that, that 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 process that you guys are talking about really doesn't. Um, it, it's more it's more behind the scenes from a, from the point of view of someone looking at the case law, and I and I and I suspect it's it's pretty much not what judges look at. I think judges look at far more than cost. I think they look at the type of cases. I think you find certain practices uh, in the pre-certification discovery, in uh, in the prisoner cases, in the uh, trade secret cases. Every every class of case seems to have. There's kind of a sense when you read. As I said, there's been about over a hundred decisions since December 1st, and I've read them all. And you can see patterns. You can see that the judges are pretty much deciding things the way they always have, and but they they have a sense of what's appropriate and inappropriate. I would say out of that hundred decisions, I can't even recall a single one where a dollar amount was put forth as the reason for a proportionality ruling. 
and I can think of several cases where judges said, look, you guys don't even have a clue what you're talking about. And since you're not willing to come forward and and be more precise about it, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna accept your argument. So, you know, I I think you're underestimating um, uh, how judges look at this sort of thing. I think they have a real instinct for these things. Although I can think of Biomed as an example where uh, there was a site for the cost that had been extended and and they weren't going to order more work. Um, but you know, my sense, and maybe this is the answer, is Judges are interested in you getting within a hand grenade throw of the price, and you can get a gut whether it's going to be really expensive or not in a proportionality analysis. Clients want the number to be right. <laughs> so maybe that's the difference that we're seeing in the, in the, in the trenches that I see. Um, yeah, I would agree. And certainly judges have other things to weigh other than, than cost. I mean, there's importance to cases that goes well beyond what they cost to adjudicate. But you're right, Carl. I was sort of thinking in terms of what the clients can bear and, and the client can expect. Yeah, I think that's where the action is. And don't forget yeah. that it isn't just e-discovery. Um, I would say probably three-quarters of the decisions don't involve e-discovery. Uh, you know, the, the proportionality rules apply across the board in lots of different kinds of cases, not just e-discovery. Mm-hmm. No, that's true. Um so we were talking about adopting new rules, and this isn't a new rule, but it's a great example because um, I know Tom, you've been deeply, we're deeply involved with the uh, the interest of 502D. I think back to our uh, original podcast we did together with, uh, I think it was Judge Grimm on uh, on 502D, or might have been Jonathan Redgrave. It's, I'm feeling older now, but uh, but I've seen a few cases recently come through where 502D was not utilized or a clawback agreement was used instead of looking to 502D and 8. And I know this predates new amendments, but is it me or do lawyers have a harder time adopting any new rules, even if they're designed to help them not get into trouble to waive privilege because of e-discovery? And, you know, can we do a better job educating or do we need more judicial intervention to force the implementation of new rules? Tom, you want to jump in on that or uh, Uh. anyone else? I don't take 502D all that seriously. I think that uh, um, I know the judges love it and and really wish that it was in every single case. But the reality is that that in 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 the real life it either isn't important because you know there's no privileged documents involved in this kind of case, or uh, it's so important to you that you're willing to spend the extra money to do it. So I think people are uh, making a big mistake if they don't just routinely include it. And it's my understanding that in the um, in in the in the one percent rule that Stuart was alluding to, where you had a big patent case, or you've got a big antitrust, you know, or, or you got or two corporations on uh, both sides of the on either side of the case, I, I think I'd be really shocked if that kind of rule isn't uh, routinely being used. So, Judge Fasciola, you know, what are the challenges, if any, with judges to get them to understand and uh, implement the new rules and do you? Do you want to uh, take the judge's perspective back to uh, what, yeah, well, I what, think what we, just answered? We have to differentiate between the groups of judges. Obviously, the state court judges have 80% of the business. Unfortunately, they don't have 80% of the budget for training. It's been my experience as a judge involved in training of judges um, that the state court judges is simply a matter of time and money. Uh, a friend of mine recounted a story very typically where she was trying to get the judge's attention, the state court judge's attention on a discovery matter, 
and the poor guy was uh, was presiding over a multiple homicide. So there are only so many hours a day, and there's only so much money in the budget, and little of it is, is allocated to just the training of judges, of state court judges. So the state court judges, I think, present a, a very complicated and unique challenge. You know, I, I've done training of state court judges, and um, given the, the pressures upon them, you're very fortunate to get anyone to attend. I don't know how we grapple with that as a society, but it's, it's, a, it's a major concern because even though these are federal rules, the issue they discuss is surely going to come up in state court rules. And Tom monitors very carefully uh, state rule reactions to the federal rules, and I suppose we're going to see more of those developments as we have in the past with more state court rules adopting rules that are very close to the federal rules of civil procedure. So there is a great sense of urgency about training the state bar, but I don't see it in the legislative appropriations for training or in giving judges time to get away from the bench and do something else. On the federal side, we're, we're blessed. We're much more lucky. There is money appropriated for the Federal Judicial Center and its programs. Uh, they're already, and I've participated in several programs training federal judges. One uh, roadshow involving uh, Judges Rosalton and Professor Gensler out of Oklahoma, which is sponsored by Duke. And uh, those have been uh, superb and well attended by the bench and the bar, at least when I have done them. So in terms of, of judicial training, um, I think that, that it will be there. Again, it's a question of the judges finding the time, making the time to do it. Another aspect of this we have to bear in mind is that we, we've got to integrate the training of all lawyers, uh, probably at the law school level. Um, in other words, uh, the, the young lawyers coming out are going to have a profound influence uh, ultimately on the bench of the bar, really have to be trained in this stuff. And I think the law schools are, are really now being challenged and are thinking about the challenge presented by technology for lawyers and how to make uh, legal education truly relevant. So those are challenges that are in front of us. Uh, they are demanding challenges, to say the least. So the next few years, we're going to see whether we're equal to them or not. Tom, I think we might have answered this question, but I just remember looking at the comments on the new rules. It was your drafts in particular particular early on and then reading through all the comments that came through um, and it seemed like uh, there was just a huge percentage of comments that came in from plaintiff firms that just focused on the arbitrary restriction on the number of depositions and other technical um, tools that lawyers use to 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 uh, do discovery and uh, were those the sort of things that got that ended up being uh, watered down or, or pushed out that you were talking about and not not really uh, focused on or well I'm, I'm glad you brought that up Carl because candidly I've forgotten about that um, but you're absolutely right the um, in the spirit of, of, in, of introducing more proportionality into the discovery process the committee recommended that the number of interrogatories the number of depositions and so on uh, the numerical presumptive numbers that are currently in the rules you know like 10 of this or so on of that would be cut basically cut in half, and um, there was an enormous pushback against that. And then, frankly, uh, it, sho it shows the flexibility of the committee that they simply dropped it. It simply is not part of the new rules. Uh, and as as the committee notes, um, it might well it might it's either uh, in the committee report, I guess it was, or maybe I'm thinking back to one of the minutes of the meetings. But anyhow, uh, Judge Cole was quoted as saying, "Look, there's other ways to get proportionality." Uh, and and we'll we'll look forward to working with people and get to proportionality in other ways. So 
they yes, uh, it, it, it's it's a credit to the committee. They backed off on that one. So, um, Judge Grimm did a really good job on a prior podcast, um, two podcasts ago, walking us through the new uh, Rule 37E rules on sanctions and preservation obligations. And I know Tom, you've written some some uh, material specifically on that. Do you think the new rule is going to be understood by the lawyers? Because as I recall in prior drafts of your analysis, you observed that this, this rule, the way you got sliced and put back together again and reordered, uh, was sort of a complicated rule to follow mechanically. Well, you know, I'm going to give you my opinions because you asked for them, but I'm not sure they're universal. But uh, I I am astounded at how well that process turned out. Uh, I believe that the initial draft put out in 2013 was a disaster. It was so complex. There were so many twists and turns and willfuls and bad face and uh, you know irre- irreplaceable. You know, it, there was just a whole lot of moving parts in it. And instead, after listening to public comments, they sat down. That subcommittee sat down. I think they had seven meetings. Uh, they went on for hours and hours over a relatively short period of time. And when they, when the dust cleared on April the 11th, 2014, in a a room at the Lewis and Clark uh, Law School in um, Portland, Oregon, they walked in with with the current draft. And frankly, it's not complicated at all. It's a pretty simple uh, rule. It says, look, if, uh, if someone has failed to preserve ESI, that should have been preserved because they failed to take uh, reasonable steps. And if you can't replace it or restore it, uh, then in that event, the court has really very broad discretion to deal with any resulting prejudice, so long as you limit the the, um, measures to that necessary to cure the prejudice. And should should the court conclude that a party acted with the intent to deprive the other of that missing information, then in that event, the court can impose some very serious measures um, to, to to take care of it, and that's not complicated, Carl. And and no, I don't agree that it's complicated. I don't believe it's going to be a problem for courts. Now, what's interesting is, in the roughly 30 or 35 cases that have been decided under it since then, at least half of the cases have have ducked it. They've either refused to say that I want to apply it, and they argue things like, "Well, we, you know, it was argue, this this motion was argued before the rules went into effect, so it's not just and practicable to apply it," or they find another excuse such as, "Well, there's some documents involved here, and, and you know, and I'm not so sure that when you have both documents and ESI, you have to apply the rule." And then some people are saying, "Well, I still have inherent power, so I can ignore the rule." But nonetheless, there are 15 decisions out there in, the, in Westlaw and LexisNexis where courts have actually applied it in a pretty straightforward manner. Now, you haven't asked me yet if that's making any difference. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I'm not going to comment on that until you push me on that one. But, uh, <laughs> well, well but like I, half the time it is. Yeah. This is Fachiola. And, and, and perhaps, Stuart, could, we could chat about this, is in terms of course, making a difference. We know the rule. Uh, only talks about reasonable efforts. And there are some who have argued it was a lost opportunity to define the preservation obligation with more precision. Uh, I've got to say mea culpa to those people because I was on the committee and we concluded that it was impossible to do that. 
But I suppose the question is, is preservation going to become more proportionate and reasonable um, now that the rule is effective? Well, I, I think it, I'm not sure I can answer that. I don't, I don't know that we have enough time to really to really tell the effect. But I think with the 2015 amendments, we all have you know our our most favorite and our least favorite, and and the amendment to 37E I think is the most consequential, uh, if I could put it that way, of of the amendments. I, I would echo Tom. I think the net result of it this is a pretty complicated question. Was as as good as we could have hoped. And clearly, the 2006 changes to this rule were, were inadequate, and we seemed to really know it at the time, yet we couldn't come up with this language that we now have in 2015. So I'm certainly hoping that um, it will um, make preservation duties clearer and perhaps uh, narrower. I'm not sure that we know that that's the real outcome, but it does, I think, clarify um, the uh, remedies that the court can impose when there's been clear failure to preserve, which I do think happens all the time. And I think, you know, our, our case law indicates that this is where most of the problems do seem to occur very early on in the e-discovery process. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, you, you alluded to it earlier to the, uh, the, the, the large middle class of lawyers that aren't savvy and e-discovery compared to the, the beltway and the, the people that really focus, you think maybe one of the best benefits of the new rules is that it puts e-discovery back in the headlines for lawyers to try and learn more about this uh, in the field, and maybe we should amend the rules every six years until we get that critical mass of lawyers comfortable and then stop. Well, I, I do, I, and I don't mean to um, diminish the value of these new amendments. I think we've the amendments that we've been making over the course of the last, you know, three or four iterations as we've adjusted our rules relative to um, ESI and the advent of technology, I, I think they're good rules. I think we're making progress. Um, so I don't want to diminish that. But on the other hand, clearly, um, every time there's a new amendment that goes into effect um, relative to e-discovery, there's a lot of discussion. There's a lot of publication. There's podcasts like this one. And I think that's that's good for the profession. Um, I, I do kind of harken back to my earlier comment that it, it's depressing for those of us that are, you know, hip deep in this, that it's taken so long for people to really consider it. Um, and to understand it and to take the rules seriously, that's kind of an ongoing uh, process that will perhaps n- never conclude. But, but yeah, even if the amendments are inconsequential, which I don't think they are, I do think that the net result of um, more visible, louder um, discussion of it is, is, is a good outcome. So I would certainly like to see this process continue, and I have no, I have no doubt that it, that it will. Well, the... Uh... The, the, the charge of the of the uh, rules committee is to constantly evaluate uh, the rules and their adequacy. And uh, one of the things that I I like to point out in my most recent articles is that the um, the chair of the rules committee uh, said at the time he introduced uh, Rule 37E into the to the committee was that look we're, we've done the best we can we think it's a good rule but we're going to have to wait and see how it plays out. And Stuart alluded to that a minute ago uh, when he was talking about whether or not it's going to deal with overpreservation. Uh, we're going to have to wait and see how it does play out because there there are some there's some real limiting factors going on here. For example, the um, by confining the rule 37E for I'm going to stick with 37E for a minute by confining it to ESI only, 
um, you run into there's an, an enormous number of enormous. There, there's five or six opinions that everybody ought to read, where there's a mixture of ESI and other kinds of information, either in tangible form or documentary form. And it, it's absurd to have different rules apply to different parts of a failure to preserve. And um, I, I deeply regret that the committee didn't take the suggestion I made, which was to at least differentiate between tangible property and documents and ESI. In other words, the, the rule ought to apply both to documents and ESI. Admittedly, tangible property has its unique aspects, and, and I, I don't have any problem with a separate body of law developing for that. But I think it's a real mistake not to have both documents and ESI covered by the same um, spoliation rules. Hmm. So here, here's a pet peeve of mine, and it may be my ignorance of the rulemaking process, but why can't we draft rules that encourage more experimentation with technology and work process with safe harbors for testing out new approaches? I mean, the tax code, for example, provides financial incentives for adopting new technologies, be it solar power or battery-operated cars, and I'm not going to go into the merits of either of those technologies, but you know, Judge Bacciola and, and anyone else on the panel, you know, can you answer me the question, why don't the rules ever take similar approaches to encourage more technology? Well, this is Bacciola. That's because a wise man, Edmund Burke, said when change is not necessary, it is necessary not to change. You. If you try to come, if you try to come up with rules as to each new piece of technology to come out, they'd be outdated within weeks uh, as the technology changed. Remember, the word "phono records" was in the federal rules well into the 80s, which must have mystified everybody who was under the age of 35 as to what they were. But I know you'd agree with me: vinyl is better than, than vinyl digital, is better. Right? No, but I, I think it would be it would be. I think the converse is true that the uh, you'll see throughout the uh, the committee notes uh, either this or the, the 206 amendments the fear the committee addressed that if we made these technology dependent as we understand the technology today we run the risk of there being outdated like phono records uh, within a year or two that's why words like reasonable and so forth are so pertinent I really don't know how you can do that and I'm not sure sure you would want to and frankly. <clears throat> And Carl, you guys got, uh, you ought to be really pleased with the amendment that was made to the committee note after, really at the last minute without any public discussion, in which uh, predictive coding is is blatantly encouraged in the uh, committee notes in Rule 26. I mean, yeah. you got to be ecstatic about getting that in there. Well, I certainly was. I thought it was uh, important to, to make note of, and I think it's where it belongs. I think it belongs in the notes, and I think it belongs in, in the case law. And I think Judge Feschel is right. We can't really anticipate where the technology is going to go with any surety. Um, so it's hard to make anything more specific than to make those kinds of encouragements. And when they're vague like that, it's hard to put them into the rules. We just encourage people to use new technologies and avail themselves. And, you know, there's some, there's some professional responsibility issues here too that could be brought to bear of keeping up the dates and that sort of thing with the technologies that can uh, lower costs and provide efficiencies. So, so I think it's covered one way or another. And we yeah, can't, and Go ahead. I've done enough show, uh, shows with Judge Fatchel, and I've learned a couple of things. And I try not to get excited about anything that happens in the field because it's a long path that we're on, and <laughs> just tends never to get you, never end up as you hope uh, when you when you see something that should get you excited. But but uh, but anyway, yeah. No, that was nice that that got in there. 
Um, well, and and, and and don't forget the way it got in there too. It was a little. It was a little. I didn't like the way it got in there. Let me put it that way. I wish there had been a more open discussion of it. In any event, it was stuck in as, as you know at the last minute at the standing committee level. Um, the other thing I want to say about technology is that um, there's a real risk that you could overstate the uh, role of courts and, and, and choices made by parties as to where to make their investment. In other words, you, you could get to the place where if you um, push it, uh, then you begin to sanction people who don't invest uh, what you, the court, or maybe you, the vendor, feels is an adequate amount of money in technology. And I, to me, that's an overstretch. I, I, I think the courts and, and, and the vendors ought to stay out of telling uh, parties how much money they ought to be spending on what is essentially not their core business. Um, uh, anybody, I'm sure all you guys well know the thing that I used to go through, which was I go and talk to my head of IT or or maybe the head of finance or maybe even my my president, and I would say, gee, I got this new bell and whistle I'd love to have. Well, you know what? We got other things to spend money on besides uh, electronic discovery. So I'm, I'm not anxious that the rules should tell us how much money should be invested. Well, I think I think we sort of summarized our opinion on the new rules. So um, that the uh, the rulemaking process works very well. Um, it takes a while, but it seems to have gotten it right here. And I just want to give you each a chance if you had anything else you wanted to add. Uh, um, but but I, I think it's been a great show. Um, um, and well, I think you should not ignore the fact that there's a number of other important changes in the in the uh, final rules. Rule one, for example, by making it a joint uh, responsibility of the court and the parties to um, have speedy, just speedy and inexpensive resolution. That's an important change. And the committee notes are important because they stress cooperation and proportionality. That's an important change. I think it's important to to see the changes in Rule 16, especially 16B, and in Rule 26F, under which parties now in their discovery plans are are encouraged to hand to the people in you know, taking Judge Fasciola's rule uh, what the, what their disputes are with respect to preservation and so on uh, involving electronic discovery. Get them, get them resolved up front before they hang around and, and uh, get everybody upset. And I don't think it's insignificant that the uh, ability to, make, to serve your uh, document requests early without the clock running on you is, is a good idea. And, and I really like the fact that they've changed the requirements for objections you have to be more precise in what you state as to whether you're withholding things or not. So I, I think that the, the overall, when you take into account all of the changes that were made, you really have to say the committee did a remarkable job. Yeah, I definitely think it's a, it's a step forward. You could argue that it's not as consequential as the 2006 amendments, but clearly they're well thought out and well done. I do have to... I mentioned my most favorite. Now I can mention my least favorite, which is the change of the language in Rule 1. I think the emphasis is good, and I, I agree with you, Tom, that it's important that we indicate somewhere that it's the court and the parties. But who else would it be? 
and these rules should be construed and administered. That extra phrase just grates a little bit on my ear, but I think in my 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 objection is more uh, cosmetic than it is uh, than it is consequential. But I, but I'm optimistic uh, uh, also that as we go forward, we're going to continue to find ways in which the rules can be refined um, and improved. And um, I think we have a set of rules now, actually, which work pretty well if people would just read them and understand them and follow them. And this is kind of one of the first discussions that I have with partners who are somewhat new to e-discovery. It's like, well, you know, we have a good set of rules, and if you can bear with me for 20 or 30 minutes or maybe an hour if I'm lucky uh, and let me walk, through, walk you through them, um, you'll, you'll see that. So. Bismarck once said that those who love legislation and sausage should not watch either being made. Yeah, um, there's a lot behind the scenes here, that's for sure. But I think I think Bismarck was wrong in terms of this process. We actually watched this process, as Tom and Stuart have pointed out. Uh, the committee at one point got bogged down in some rules that didn't make a lot of sense, abandoned them. And I think uh, what it came up with is workable. But again, uh, if human beings were angels, we wouldn't need rules. If lawyers don't enter into uh, a cooperative spirit in using them, a lot of time will be uh, wasted. I think that's another aspect of this we have to emphasize, the constant emphasis within the rules, within the committee notes on transparency and cooperation. That's, that's a central theme as well. Great. Well, I want to thank uh, Tom Allman, Stuart Hubbard, uh, for joining Judge Facciola and myself today in the GSI Bytes discussion. And, uh, uh, the listeners have any questions about this show or any other programs at ESI Bytes, feel free to email me at carl at inspiredreview.com. Uh, I'd like to thank our sponsor, Journal, for their continued support of ESI Bytes. And to the listeners, if you've enjoyed this podcast, I'd encourage you to go to www.esibytes.com with a Y for a complete list of our shows. And as we always say here, come to ESI Bytes to learn more about e-discovery before ESI Bytes you back. This is Carl Shinneman, president of Remote Review at Inspire Review, wishing you a nice day. Hey, guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun, too. It's a thing, and now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun, Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino-style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.